Welcome back for another episode of the Post Money Plan Podcast. My name is Dallas Post, and I am your host. As you know, I believe empowerment comes through knowledge, so my purpose here is to inform, educate, and stimulate thought within personal finance, economics, and investing. You can find me at postmoneyplan.com or search the Post Money Plan in the iTunes podcast app or in Google Play. All right, so in this episode, I wanted to discuss behavioral finance and compare that against the efficient market hypothesis. There's been a long debate in the finance community about the efficiency of markets and whether or not you can beat the markets over time. And so a lot of that has to do with finance theory, with people thinking about how markets work and how assets are priced. There's a lot of debate on the academic side as to how efficient the markets are. And you've had Nobel laureates actually earn Nobel Prizes on both sides of the debate with Robert Schiller earning a Nobel Prize for behavioral finance theory. And then you had Eugene Fama, who earned a Nobel Prize for the efficient market side of the debate. So there's definitely support for both sides of the arguments. But I wanted to kind of debate that around. So I brought Stephen Gao onto the show today and we'll debate that out. Welcome to the show, Stephen. Hey, Dallas. Thanks for having me again. Appreciate it. So actually, let me start by defining what we mean by an efficient market. So at least this is what I mean. I'm thinking where people say the assets in a marketplace are priced, quote unquote, accurately, and they fully reflect all available information. That's correct. I agree. So that's what people, or at least what I think of when you talk about an efficient market. So what we're talking about in this context would be mostly the stock market because that's where we transparently see the price of stocks on a daily basis. So those are being traded by buyers and sellers on a daily basis and and being repriced all the time. Information is coming out. People come on a spectrum of how efficient they think the market is, but a lot of academics tend to fall on the pretty strong efficiency side of the market. You have some who are all the way on the end of being strong form efficient market saying all information is priced into the stocks. You can never beat the market. No one has superior advantage or anything like that. And there's just no way you could beat the market and there's no point in picking stocks or anything like that. All the way to the other end of the spectrum, which I would say would be everyone participating in the market is completely irrational. Information is very asymmetrically disseminated throughout a marketplace. So Some investors have huge advantages over other investors. Basically, you've got a big spectrum. People disagree on this. So where do you come on this? No, I was just thinking about that. The last couple of years, like the way the internet has evolved, there's a different form of, different wave of dissemination of information. I don't think it's perfect. I don't think it's absolute in terms of perfection. I definitely think there's imperfections, but it's just a matter of, now you have to frame the timing of of, uh, when when these things are going to be taken advantage of. In terms of when do people take advantage of mismatch in pricing? Because if people realize a certain rate of mismatch of information, it's going to have an adverse effect on price. Noticing beforehand the fluctuations, it's almost just like with bubbles that would burst. It surprises a lot of people. So it's tough to make that call, but I would definitely say that it's not a perfect market. So I would definitely think that more innovative procedures or theory could be applied especially with the Internet of Things, more thoroughly in terms of transferring information, which would definitely be more of a a boost for the marketplace, I think. So at this point, I'm going to say it's not a perfect market, dude. 
the reason why I think this is a valuable or important topic to address is because it has vast implications on your behavior in terms of investment and participation uh, in marketplaces. Because yeah. if you buy into the one extreme of the market being fully efficient, then you would never make any investment decisions other than to put money into the market or take money out. But you would never really make picks per se. Versus the other end of the spectrum of extreme inefficiency, you would potentially benefit or stand to benefit from trying to time the market in terms of entry and exit and selection of individual stocks over others and those kind of things. So I think there's a lot of merit in picking a side to what your disposition is because then that affects the way you approach your investing. I would say that the market is pretty efficient, but not efficient in the academic sense. Because okay. if you think of it as a progression, it's very easy to say that the market is more efficient today than it was 10 years ago. And it's more efficient. It was more efficient 10 years ago than it was 50 years ago. The dissemination of information has become more evenly distributed. More people have the same access to the stock market and investing in general as everyone else. So those kind of things have progressed over time. So things have become more and more the same throughout every investor in yeah. terms of accessing information. Like nowadays, we have the internet and information can go around the world all you know at the same time versus if you think back 100 years ago that the person at the source of, of an event would have a bit of information maybe a day ahead of time or something like that. Right. And then that person could benefit from an investment ahead of an investor who gets that information a day later or two days later or a week later or something. A lot of the potential benefit of market timing, a lot mm -hmm. of the benefit of behavioral side is in market participants acting irrationally and or not having all the information all at once. So yeah. if you're able to get information that others don't have, then you could have an advantage in theory and, right. and therefore benefit from that. And a lot of the laws that we have in the U.S. are to try to make an even playing field so that it doesn't disincentivize investors from participating. Because the problem with the market being really, really inefficient is that you disincentivize a lot of people from participating because if you're just going to get completely steamrolled by the people who have all the information, then that makes you not want to participate and be an investor. And in our capitalist system, we want everyone participating and contributing to companies that create value and, and create profits. That way, we, we want an even playing field. So there's the laws that make like insider trading illegal, for example, because mm -hmm. the people on the inside of a company have access to information before people way outside the company. But by having that law in place, we make the market more efficient in the sense that the people who would just buy logistics have information sooner than others. You know, the employees of the company have it sooner than just some random person outside the company. But by putting insider trading laws in place, then we even the playing field in terms of information dissemination or at least utilization in terms of investment of that, then that makes the market more efficient in an academic sense. Okay. Dissemination of information. Who are we getting information from? What kind of stakes do they have in the picture? 
I think like a lot of big criticism in the last year, year and a half about quote unquote mainstream media is that they're embedded politicians. And so like you see that the, the way they disseminate information has a political agenda or political bias to it. So like I think that essence also applies in how we get our information for the marketplace. I feel like we haven't touched on this enough yet, but on the behavioral finance side, a large dynamic to that is the psychology of investors. The way investors feel and think about investments affects the way that they invest in things and therefore the prices of assets. Yeah. Have you heard the way Warren Buffett tells it, which I guess is really originally from Benjamin Graham about Mr. Market? Mm -hmm. No, I haven't. How's it go? He basically describes the stock market as like this manic depressive person called Mr. Market. Okay. So sometimes Mr. Market will be euphoric. He'll be like really excited and happy and everything's great and like nothing can dissuade him from optimism. And, yeah. and that's a time when you're in an extreme bull market and everybody's mm -hmm. buying and bidding prices up and prices are above intrinsic value, so you could say. And then mm -hmm. there's other times where he's just absolute depressive, in complete, utter despair. Like, yeah. There's nothing good, and there can be no optimism. It's, it's all pessimism. And, it's a bear market. And everything's bad. And that's a bear market when mm -hmm. prices are bid down and everybody doesn't want to buy, no matter like how good the fundamentals are. Yeah. And, and it's just the other end of the extreme. So that's like Warren Buffett's Mr. Market analogy of saying, instead of the market being fully efficient, you have investors in, in aggregate, the market as a whole, not necessarily one individual at a time, but everyone uh, in, collectively, in, collectively, exactly, ends <laughs> up feeding into herd mentality and therefore either get uh, okay. overly excited or overly depressed about a given market at, a, at some point in time. So for example, you might apply that to cryptocurrency right now. Uh -huh. Is it where it fundamentally should be? Or is it everyone's just like euphoric at the same time and kind of feeding into that? Hard to say, but based yeah. on like historical norms, it seems that there is that kind of herd mentality feeding into that. Yeah, I'm, I totally agree with you on that. I definitely see like a lot of people are, are coming into light about it, but no one really knows why. So it's like this focus on demand is driving up the price. But eventually, I feel like something's going to burst, and then that's when the reality, like a phoenix will rise from the ashes, as they usually say colloquially. But like that's when like a reformation of its implementation can take place, because it's really more about the blockchain technology that establishes uh, a cryptocurrency presence. But I think, I think just by the fact of potential bubbles existing in the first place dethrones a fully efficient market theory. For a bubble uh -huh. to exist is to basically admit that a market is not efficient. I mean, the problem is a lot of these things are subjective. So you could argue something is or is not a bubble. And whether that is not the case is to be debated. True point. I want to pinpoint you down more, though. So on a scale of yeah. 0 to 10, with 0 being complete irrationality of the market at all times, and 10 being mm -hmm. like perfect efficiency of the markets and no inefficiency at 10... Where would you put yourself? Uh, 6.2. <laughs> <All right. laughs> yeah, something around that. Yeah, I don't, I don't know, man. I don't know. You tell me. Where would you put yourself? Probably closer to zero? No, no, no. No, definitely not. 
I would say it's hard for me to pinpoint a number. I mean, maybe it's like seven or something, but definitely mm-hmm. on a progression, like it's been moving from zero to seven or wherever it is. You know what I mean? So the trajectory yeah. is more efficiency over time. So I would definitely admit that. And the more you have computers involved and the less you have humans making decisions, I think even more contributes to the efficiency, which segues into the next point, which I wanted to talk about, which was cognitive biases. So this is where I think the real big part of that Mr. Market comes into play and the irrationality really takes hold in the marketplace and efficiency goes out the window is cognitive biases especially with respect to investing. What are what are some biases that you see in the market? Uh, probably like confirmation bias. I have like a couple apps on my phone and they always give me updates on the stock market. And then so I, I can see a news report on one company or like one, one aspect of the market from like three different sources. And when it's all told in a different way, sometimes I can tell like the, the intent behind how it's, how it's described. And I can see how like a lot of people can think one way about a concept, and so but I'm like more mindful for it. And so like learning about these biases, like you become to be more sentient about like the market space. But I'd say like you know a lot of the way point though is just having an awareness of biases helps you yeah. to avoid the downfalls of them. Yeah, exactly. No, just because like if I had like one only like one solitary place for information on the market space. What would be my main incentive to trust it? And I think because of the internet, like anything central in today's world, is finding to be itself more obsolete. So like having a more decentralized process of gathering information makes me feel, it grows my confidence level. So I think that's what strengthens heuristics. Like learning how to build these like little rules, so to speak, when you make problem solving or decision making happen. So you're saying that kind of like takes out the potential for biases or irrationality in a decision-making process? Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like a tool, yeah, exactly, like to improve uh, upon like previous experience to see how you can maximize utility. Okay, so you just mentioned the confirmation bias, which you're saying you're over-prioritizing information that agrees with your existing opinion. So let's say you were bullish on Twitter (laughs) because you believe in the platform, but then you refuse to hear any negative facts that come out about it. That would be a case where you're just stuck on Twitter and you just already have a preconceived notion that it, you're bullish on the stock and then you're, you're not going to hear any of the bad news and you're only going to hear any little good bit. You're like focused on that. <laughs> Man, I feel like you just read my mind, dude. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I will, I will honestly say this. I'm really, I'm really biased for Twitter, <laughs> but... The one thing I'm really excited about is the extension of the characters, 280 characters. If that's not confirmation bias, I don't know what is. Like, <laughs> is that really going to no. change the company for success? Yeah, dude, because you have like uh, just <laughs> Mark Bowers, Derek Mark is zero. You, uh, you're totally like, falling you... into the right. You've just proved the inefficient market. <laughs> oh man. Because you have a uh, higher combination of ways to communicate, interpret information, interpret information. <laughs> I think because it's so decentralized and there's a multitude of opportunities to take advantage. So one that I don't really think about too much is anchoring. Anchoring is, is when you over-prioritize the first piece of information that you hear over like anything after that. 
that one's a yeah. really subtle one because it's very hard to benchmark the first thing versus later things. But the way you can <laughs> really think of this easily is when you first meet a person, just one little thing that they do, if they do something that kind of offends you or something, yeah. then you can form a completely bad opinion of them, even though it was just one little thing because it was the first thing that you experienced or knew learned about them. Yeah, that's a good point. Just to add on to the, the concept or feeling of like first impressions, whatever, whenever it's either you're in a social gathering or making market decisions. Like I remember when I was like first started buying stock, I was having that that feeling of uh, anchoring. Like you know, the first thing I'd read about is oh, like wow, Amazon made money quality. I'm going to buy stock or like you know, like random things like that. Can uh, is like the the, uh, the feeling of first impression can be easily associated with anchoring. Yeah, the one I thought of was. <laughs> If you had never heard of Chipotle and then you only heard about it when it was in the news because of the E. coli outbreak thing, yeah, yeah, that was the first time you heard of it, then you would just be like, Chipotle is probably a horrible company. I would never buy that stock kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. Even if it is like a, a, a very good, well-run, quick-serve restaurant. <laughs> so one I think of in the market is recency bias. Things that you just have heard recently, you over-prioritize that over something that's older information. Okay. Like for example, the market has been doing really well recently. So people think like, oh, it should do well in the future just because it's been doing well just recently. Yeah, yeah. Versus analyzing well, all of like complete historical data and not just what you've heard recently. I think this is a hilarious example of the irrationality of it or the manic depressiveness of investors. I helped a friend who's not really an investor. She wanted to buy some Bitcoin and some Ether back, maybe it was like three or four months ago. So uh-huh. I was like, okay, I don't want you to put too much into it. But if you want to just like have some fun, put a little bit into it and then just leave it alone and don't expect to get anything back from it. And if it goes up a bunch, then you'll make a bunch. Yeah. So she put a little bit into it. And then back in September, it went down. Like it went up from where she bought it and then it went down some maybe back to like where she bought in. And so September 14th, (laughs) she makes a post on Facebook and she says, I guess if you want to buy Bitcoin or Ether on sale, now is the time. And then these sad emojis. (laughs) And then then she's like, I know I should have been careful. I'm thinking I should have sold last week. I think JP Morgan CEO had something to do with this. (laughs) And then the price has been going up recently. And so on November 16th, she's saying, oh, I'm so excited. I wish I had put more money when it when it fell. If I had put uh-huh. this much, then it would have been this much. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I was just thinking, that's a perfect example of recency bias. Okay, cryptocurrencies have been going down. So, oh, it's terrible. I, like, I should have sold and yeah. out of these. And then it goes up a bunch. Yeah. Like, oh, I, sh- I should have been in this and bought more. <laughs> yeah that's true man that also kind of relates to another bias which is herding or bandwagon like a herding mentality or bias that really relates to what we were saying about cryptocurrency before i i think even though i was on the bandwagon but i've seen like so many people so many other people come on the bandwagon and it's kind of scaring me because i don't like being in the big herd (laughs) (laughs) yeah i feel you on that it's kind of crazy, but uh, with every ebb and flow, there's something to learn. But I guess the problem with the herding, though, is that people could be mm-hmm. buying into something just because everyone else is doing it and not because they know anything about it or it could be just a completely uninformed decision. 
which I could see the case with cryptocurrencies. So that's the point of like, how do you measure people's, how well do you think people are content with information? Say you read like five articles on Bitcoin and you're like, okay, I know what I want to do now. And you buy more Bitcoin. But say someone else is not convinced after five. Say like their appetite is hardly even fed. So they go through like a hundred articles just to be extreme here. And then after a hundred articles, they're like, okay, fine. I know what I want to do now. Like I'll, I won't buy now, but I'll think about it later. How do you attenuate for that? Because that has an overall impact, you know, speaking about like the herd and like the overall marketplace versus the individual. I guess it matters on how sticky they are as an investor. If someone is convinced okay. by one little tidbit of information and then they buy into Ether, for example, yeah. and then just on that one bit of information, there's nothing that can dislodge them, then I guess it doesn't really matter because no matter what bad information comes out, then they're not going to change their mind. They're not going to sell. So it's not going to yeah. change the price. But if only reading one article or five articles, then they buy in. But then one article of negative information then scares them off. Then they're a very flaky investor. And yeah. then that's going to lead to more volatility and more irrationality in the market. Have you experienced this loss aversion bias? Yeah, man. This is my worst one. I have dealt with this one many a time. <laughs> <laughs> loss aversion is where you dislike investing losses much more than gains. And then you're, yeah. you're, you're holding on to the losing investments to avoid realizing the pain of a loss. And that one's, yeah, I feel, this one is a mm -hmm. horrible one. You know, I feel like it's a classic, like if you think of a balancing scale, on one side, it's uh, opportunity costs. On the other side, it's, it's sunk costs. So it's like seeing perspective and how it weighs your gains and losses, so to speak. Do you have any specific examples? Um, so you know what's funny? A couple of months ago, I, I bought some stock, some Rite Aid stock at two fifty a share. And I bought 40 shares, so that was $100. And I recently sold it, and I sold it at like, I think like a buck fifty or something. My perspective was I'd rather cut the loss at this number and then say that I, I gained this, or at least at least I reserved this X as a surplus. Because I was like, it's, it's a, initially my perspective going into this investment was it's a really low bid. I feel like it could go up in like the next couple of months. It was pretty speculative, but I was just like, it can't go lower than this. I really thought that was a low price. And what I based that decision on was just, I don't know. I didn't do thorough research, but I just had this, or oh, at the time, I thought it was a hunch. It's just been going down. And so like at this point, maybe I could buy more, buy more. But I was like, it's simple. Instead of losing 100, I'll just say I'll lose 40 and keep 60. That's why I think it's really important when you're making these type of investments to have a lot of fundamental research and a strong thesis yeah. on why it is that you're doing what you're doing. Because if you don't have the conviction for whatever it is that you're doing, and then the trade goes against you, if you don't have that conviction, then you start to second guess yourself. And then you go based on how you feel rather than whatever you planned back when you were making the investment. Sometimes it also happens when, like, like, I remember I had this one stock, like, in public storage. I got it at a good time, and the price was going up. And I just, I was concerned that it was going to, if I held on too long, I'd be affected to, like, a, a significant price drop. So I sold it at a good profit. But uh, the price kept going up afterwards, a few months after I sold it. So part of me felt like I had, like, some regret because I was like, man, I should have had more patience and hold on to it.
So I don't know if you consider that as a factor of loss aversion. No, that would be, uh, what do you call that one? A fear of missing out. It's the FOMO bias. <laughs> the what bias? FOMO bias. FOMO, I never heard of that. Okay, FOMO bias, fear <laughs> of missing out. Yeah, maybe that's probably like related to like hurting or something. Yeah, kind of. But here's my personal experience with the loss aversion. It's been my worst one. A more recent experience I've had with that was I bought Asina Retail, which is one of the retail stocks. They own Justice and Crate and Barrel and a bunch of third tier retail companies. <laughs> yeah. I bought it on the basis of it being fundamentally undervalued. Okay. So that was why I bought it as a value investment. But I didn't take a step back and acknowledge what has been going on for the last couple of years, which is that Amazon is completely eating up the entire retail market space and market share. All these retail companies are just having a horrible time of things because of Amazon. And mm -hmm. also there is upcoming shift to accounting standards, which they're going to have to account for leases on their oh, wow. the equipment. Anyway. So Asina Retail was a horrible <laughs> investment. Yeah. I was just completely ignoring the impact of Amazon. The impact of Amazon. But I, I didn't sell immediately. And I was just sitting on it for a while. So that cost me by just sitting on it instead of selling it after I acknowledged that there was a, a problem with the thesis of my investment. To segue a bit, but that kind of reminds me because uh, I bought into Snap a few months ago, shortly after its IPO. So I felt like it was I felt like it was a bad decision. The IPO or you buying it? Uh me buying it. <laughs> I am <laughs> just being honest, dude, because I I, I I knew that they were a young upcoming company competing with like the likes of Facebook and they pretty much like rejected Facebook's offer. But I didn't really expect that like what Instagram has been able to get away with is pretty much it's copycat and snapchat and it's been pretty flawless they've had a flawless run at it. did you think you had some kind of bias in, in your snap investment i think i was just like you like i kind of underestimated facebook in a sense like i was like uh you know snapchat can have a chance now i feel like with social media it's just like snapchat and twitter are like on the outskirts it's like facebook is like consuming and then google has like youtube but they don't really know what to you to do with it I think the trend is going to be more towards video platforms. So I feel like YouTube has a strong potential to engage social media in a, in a better way. But like so far, Facebook is killing it. But like so Twitter and Snapchat. On Snapchat. No, not anymore. I, I dumped it. Okay. I was asking because that would be a representation of a bias there. If you're acknowledging <laughs> that your understanding of the fundamentals have shifted in contradiction to what you originally, like your thesis or whatever. And yet you refuse to take action. That would be where your your bias is creating a cognitive dissonance. Oh. Which takes place <clears throat> a lot. I mean, that's a lot of what biases are kind of about. Yeah. Especially when it comes to irrationality in the market. Your emotions contradict your logic or your logic goes out the window and, and you're just going based on the emotions. Yeah. So like... That gives me like like a new world sense of thinking about how we can find more ways to implement the emotional intelligence into the market space. Because the way computers are set up, it's like we have like this overproduction in, in like a logical thought process or like a logical output of reflecting value in the market space. But 
combining that with a stronger measure of the emotional intellect will transcend things to a whole new level, dude. But the big point that I want to stress about this is that mm -hmm. none of us are immune to these biases and it's very valuable that we acknowledge them so that we can try to avoid them. Because even though I'm laughing about her doing that, it's very easy for any of us to do that. If you're investing in something and it goes down a bunch, you want to avoid the loss or like if Bitcoin is going up and you're not a part of it, then you, you have FOMO or you want to jump on the bandwagon. You know, these things happen to all of us and being aware of them, I think, will help a lot in terms of avoiding a lot of these pitfalls. I agree, dude. There's a classic saying in hip hop, it's don't believe the hype. <laughs> <laughs> and I feel like that strongly applies like to that. I've done a lot of research online and had like I've been fortunate to just discover the right stuff to read or stuff that kind of motivates me towards this one holistic perspective about understanding you know, consumption and production of value and, and learning how to invest in the market space based on this combination of like left and right brain tactics. You know, one judges, one controls like how we judge things and more of a logical perspective and the other half of the brain controls the emotional perspective and having a holistic sense of using both forces can help one's decision making. So I feel like having a better sense of measuring the emotional intellect, animal spirits, I feel like that's really where you get to understanding the irrationality behind people's emotions and behavior. Yeah, the animal spirits is kind of like the more efficient market perspective trying to explain away the unexplainable. But exactly. It's just a in my opinion kind of a, a cop out for saying human emotions. Yeah, I don't know. With technology, I think that we can have a better way to attenuate for like the emotional intellect and the process of understanding emotions and, and behavior. Yeah, I would totally agree that just having an awareness of people's emotional behavior in their participation in the marketplace is valuable in terms of being an informed investor. And I think just having an awareness of biases will really help people make wiser choices and really save themselves a lot of money and losses in the long run. So hopefully those listening don't make the same mistakes we've made and can avoid those problems <laughs> without having to experience them yourself. Well said. Anyway, that's a wrap for this episode. All right. Thanks for having me, Dallas. Appreciate it. Don't forget you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or in Google Play by searching The Post Money Plan. Catch us next time on another episode of The Post Money Plan Podcast.